a good takeaway like understanding through that process what you want to do differently and i don't know even for me just from the years i was working in nairobi the experiences i had it becomes a basis for developing your kind of design values and your design approach going forward and actually this feeling that you know i guess it's not just a, a kenyan thing in terms of architect really being under the thumb of whoever has the money in the project yeah. Hey, welcome to another episode of Cafe Constructs, your go-to podcast for tips to achieve success in the Kenyan construction industry. Your host for this episode is Nyambura Kayuki in session with Lynette Masai, architect by training. <laughs> we shall find out more. <laughs> <We're> way. <laughs> Grab your cup of goodness. Let's talk life in construction. So welcome, Lynn. Hi. Hey, Bush. We went to school with Lynn, all honesty here. I went to school in Lane for architecture. It was an interesting six years. We loved it. We hated it. <laughs> yeah. We learned to love it. Yeah. <laughs> and now Sorry. here we are. Yeah. So if you could just small, small intro as we continue on, yeah. on where you started out in this journey, what you did in the middle, mm-hmm. and where you ended up right now. Yes, I went to architecture school at the University of Nairobi together with some of the lovely ladies who were part of this podcast. Yeah, as she says, architecture school is a ride, (laughs) but still, I think if I could do it again, a a ride I'd take. So after about, I did architecture school longer than you guys because I did hard in my sixth year. Uh, No, in... At the beginning of my sixth year, um, yeah. I took a year break and then I came back and finished a year after Bush's cohort finished, my yeah. original cohort. Then after graduating in 2016, I worked with an architecture practice in Nairobi, Cave Bureau. Yeah, this was a special experience, I feel. One of the interesting things at Cave was just observing like a homegrown architecture practice trying to chat its own conventions or its own story or its own narrative for what architectural practice can look like in an African country and going into unconventional modes of knowing or gaining information. So for example, CAVE does a lot of research into CAVEs incidentally. Yeah, but also at least I view it from my side, like CAVEs Okay, not just my side. I think this was also part of the inspiration. Caves are probably some of the most primordial architecture that our human consciousness can relate to because these places that can protect you from the elements, they can protect you from wild animals, but also depending on the scale of the caves, they can turn into literally architectural experiences because of their massiveness or how much you squeeze into a space or like a part of the roof has fallen in and then now it looks like an oculus bringing in light. It's an architectural experience in a sense, but also became an interesting tool for understanding contexts because you visit one set of caves and you realize, oh, this is an important ecological site because like the last species of a specific bat is only found in that cave. Like in Suswa, there's the Baboon Parliament, which is this place where baboons have gathered 
for thousands and thousands of years and the stones in that area are like even shiny and buffed because the baboons have been sitting on the stones and rubbing against the stones so literally <laughs> they polished the stone mm -hmm. or you go to another set of caves and you realize oh this was has historical significance because the Mau Mau used to meet here and plan some of the gorilla warfare or like the Shimoni caves and the history of uh, slave trade. In essence, yeah. they become literally like museums and then it becomes like this reverse architecture where you document the caves the same way you would document a building you're surveying for construction. And then you end up with a model and you can do interesting things with that. So that was like mind blowing and exciting to observe. It is. But also working with cave, I also got to work in conventional architecture, so a design and build of residential technology projects. Also got to work on some concepts relating to airports. Wasn't built in my time, <laughs> in the time that I was there. And also got to be involved in projects that explored local crafts and local material extensively. So working with craftsmen along Gong Road or makers in, in Kamkunji to come up with interesting details that become, you know, part of the interiors of certain projects. Like for me, this was very special and fun and interesting. And it's actually these experiences working with local craftsmen or trying to resolve details using the techniques that are kind of available in the maker space in Nairobi really inspired me but also really experienced experienced things that deeply frustrated me and also started to spur the interests that i have now that are taking me in the trajectory that i am in so for example i remember there was a project we worked on we were interested in making use of like the techniques they use for kikapus so of course that would be like weaving with sisal but we wanted it at a very massive scale and yeah. we still wanted to have like the patterns and the color and the, yeah, just the pattern and the color and aesthetic of the kikapu applied to something that's a scale that the craftspeople had never really worked on. It proved to be very frustrating and it showed that, okay, there's gaps in the ways in which we approach some of the crafts and techniques that are locally available to us. And those gaps can be filled by, yeah, people with our kind of background in architecture, in business, people with a workflow that involves kind of testing out ideas and prototyping and detailing and taking a skill that was applied in one way and reinterpreting it here. So for me, this seems to be a approach that has really stuck in my head, thing to learn about the different craft techniques that are available in Kenya, be it through weaving, be it applied to wood, applied to stoneworking, applied to earth or clay, <laughs> and seeing if there's ways to either translate this to the scale of architecture or to, I don't know, just learn from these makers and these craft people because they have a wealth of knowledge and then yeah. collaborate with them eventually to see how this skill can also be applied outside of the conventional skills that they're used to working at. So incidentally, this 
then led me to the direction of studying this course in 3D printing with clay <laughs> because I already knew that I wanted to work with local materials and I wanted to work in this kind of prototyping research and development space. Through my various links and connections, I was able to get an opportunity to study at IAC in Barcelona and to specifically do this course in 3D printing with clay, which yeah. relates very directly with this approach that I was explaining because clay art is this traditional material in Kenya literally all communities or most of the communities have built with clay for possibly hundreds and hundreds of years it's a material we used to play with as children we have familiarity with it and so it's very accessible but at the same time being able to be exposed to contemporary modes of production and digital fabrication specifically applied to clay this was interesting i then went to iac i did this program and then i stayed on at iac and also did an internship with the same institution and there other than 3D printing with clay, I got to help out on other projects that are still kind of in the digital fabrication realm. So working with CNC, working with laser cutting, observing different kind of robotic 3D printing <laughs> projects as well. And now I'm chatting new trajectories after this. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I think we'll start first with the Kenyan part of the experience. So with the transition from the Kenyan market, to go into pursue studies first and halt the career growth move. Mm -hmm. Okay, halt in air quotes because everyone ah, says halt, yeah, but I feel like mm. a redirection again yeah. is, is helpful to your knowledge base for mm. a better launch at the front. Yeah. So, what were some of your hesitations? Let's start mm. with your hesitations about mm. making that move. So I graduated in 2016 and I yeah. left uh, to come to Barcelona in towards the end of 2020. So then it means between 2016 and 2020, I was working in Kenya and I had even like amassed the amount of years, amount of experience that made me eligible to do my Borax exam. I'd even begun the process, had registered, was attending like the CPD trainings, submitted my logs. But when I submitted my logs, they said my hours were not enough. But looking back on it, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe I filled the logs wrong because yeah. the amount of time I'd been working and the amount of projects I'd done um, should have given the sufficient amount of time. But the process of preparing to do that exam was very revealing. I don't know, it created a lot of discontent for me because I was like, what? Okay, we're paying quite a lot of money. We are giving of our time to an institution that really doesn't seem to care, really doesn't seem to provide value. I'm actually in full agreement yeah. Yeah. that when you get to that point in the process, yeah. they make it so hard and return you like you're back to first year, yet yeah. you're trying to all be professionals in this market. Right, right. It annoys me too, so. I remember the CPD, the training that takes place in Safari Park. And it's like, I don't know, there just seems to be such a casualness, like a, a lack of effort, a lack of passion, such yes. a casualness to the fact that, you know, you're taking people's <clears throat> money and not necessarily giving requisite value that's even kind of keeping up with what architecture is in the no. world right now and the name um, 
continuous yeah. professional development. Yeah. You can't be showing me what I learned back then. How am I yeah. continuous? Yeah. Annoying. If if I was looking at it retrospectively, like, oh wow, they should really be talking about okay, maybe now I'm biased, <laughs> but like digital fabrication and the advances that are really taking place in this industry. Yeah, there's so much happening in the world of architecture, but if Borax as a board is your only reference for what it means to be practicing at the top of your mm-hmm. architecture profession in Kenya, there's something very stale and, and bureaucratic and... Government about it. Yeah, yeah, GOK. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Anyway, so that experience in terms of not really understanding what value this, this body is giving and feeling that really at the core of it, I'd be getting my registration just to tick the box and say that, yeah, okay, after doing all these years and doing all these years, these years of school and these years of work, I did and it. doing this exam, <laughs> now, now I get the prestige to call myself an architect. Yeah. Which, to be honest, I I want. I think all of us who have gone through this process want to be able to finally call ourselves architects after this entire process. But the fact that, okay, I went through part of this borax preparation and then kind of got stopped just before my exam. And then having observed just my discontent with that experience. Yeah, I think it gave me, like I had less, reservations saying ah let me just yeah let me take a detour let me go pursue this postgraduate in a different country yeah let's see what a different path offers without too many regrets (laughs) yeah that's true so the honest truth is okay yeah I do want to eventually get registered in a formal capacity be it in Kenya or even here if possible but somehow I'm not feeling the anxiety and the pressure as much I think there's still things this skill set allows you to do and there's still value that the skill set allows you to offer outside of having to be called an architect of course I imagine when I need to start working on individual projects then I will feel the necessity of having this registration so that's my hope to eventually yeah work towards it and get it honestly I think this is something maybe when people are on the other side they say to the other side this mm. being non-registered versus the registered person yeah and when you're on the other side you might yeah. not believe a registered person saying this. Yes, it allows you the freedom to sign your own things and to have your own path. Right. But at the same time, you mm. interact with so many, let me just call them non-registered persons. Right. Mm-hmm. right, right, right. Being let through doors that are being closed to you. No. Yes, that you feel like what you guys sold us a lie. <laughs> yeah. Because... Yeah. I'll bid, but you'll still give that person because of the connections and network. Right. Yet they are not registered, and they'll get a signature somewhere. Right. And I go like, "What was the point, the point, guy? Why were you eating my money? Why do you continuously eat my money yeah. every year?" Yeah. But yeah. with all my disillusionment for my country, yeah. I shall posit the optimistic side and go like. Yeah, I am young in the market. Yeah, I will grow and one day I'll be on the other side. Yeah, and this registration and the years are must under the registration yeah. will be a very big part of that. 
They so, will, yeah. We shall give you both sides. <laughs> yeah, and also, I mean, eventually when you do get this project, you know, having the moral high ground that, okay, you know, you're, you are going through the proper channels and yeah. you are qualified per the required regulation and law yeah. to actually act in your capacity. So I don't know, I still think eventually it's a good thing. Yes. It's just, I think, well, a lot of our systems just they don't serve us <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah. i will i will posit i am the leader of today and yeah try to change that statement for the yeah. leader of tomorrow's sake yeah you know? am i allowed to ask you questions yes this is a yeah. conversation <laughs> yeah i don't know like for you okay what was i gonna ask now but maybe you've answered it in some of the statements you've made about being on the other side but like after you got registered did you feel that there was a change in the trajectory of your career or there was an elevation or improvement in your career? Okay, so I think we even mentioned this on a couple of episodes back. Mm -hmm. It's the expectation first that comes with it. I feel like we have it in every stage of architecture. We have that expectation for when we finish sixth year, all these doors open. When we get registered, all these doors open. Yeah. When you finish even fourth year, when the first degree, all these doors open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, the now, proverbial well, opening doors you know, by magic. <laughs> so sixth yeah. year taught me that, yeah, that didn't work out the same way. Registration, I had the hope that, okay, now you can be a free agent. Now right. you can charge full rates. Right. You know, that small hope left, you know. Yeah. And then I got registered. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't go that way, first of mm. all. Yeah, because I was in employment at the time. Yeah. And I got registered. And honestly, I thought, yeah, I'm registered now. I'm upper skill level. So first right. of all, remuneration exactly should should reflect. Should reflect all yeah. the investment I just came through. Yeah. From time yeah. to read, from yeah. time to practice, to all the money you have to pay. And right. not just even for your borax year. Yeah. Even all the way before, you've just been dishing out money, feeding this chain that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you know? Yeah. So, sadly to say, I was met with a lot of disappointment on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, now you have a paper. <laughs> Good for you. Like, ah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll review in a year's time. We'll see. If, in a year's time. Oof. Right? Yeah. If our listeners haven't caught season one of the first yeah. episodes, oh. we talked about all this journey. Right, right, go right, back, right. Have a right. listen. So yeah. with that, and I don't know if it happens to you, but yeah. my journey in architecture mm-hmm. has had this when we started and I said love, hate, then learn to love it again. Mm-hmm. That has been my journey of this career. From right. fourth year, you graduate and you actually sit down and debate whether you're right. really gonna come finish those two years. Yep. You know? <laughs> yeah. Everyone is telling you, just finish now. But you're like, do I really it's have worth it? Better? <laughs> <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> <go high. laughs> and then after sixth year, because when I graduated sixth year, first of all, I took yeah. six months off. Yeah. Everyone, I, I remember our whole bunch, most people jumped into work and they were yeah. ready. I was like, yeah, I'm a bit done with this career. Yeah. Let me go see how I can live life the other way. And yeah. it happened again during registration where yeah. you would assume this would be your big jump. 
Right. But no, it turned out after registration and employment, like after just like with employment, I was like, can I just take a break first? Yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. This, you know, because yeah. also I feel like when you expose yourself and when you look into internet and the world market and how things are growing and then you try you mm-hmm. really try you try to get extra courses webinars mm-hmm. but you know even with all the knowledge our mm-hmm. market isn't there yet mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a disillusionment that hits you and yeah. you have to pass through it it's your brick wall of right. any career where you actually have to ask you, yourself that question for yeah. i've already invested this much yeah am i willing to invest more am i willing to leave the table and if i right. do leave the table where am i going dark night of the soul <laughs> you know <laughs> exactly so well after i took my break i did a project i did one project mm-hmm. on my own amazing and, and i learned from that project a lot of things i don't want to do right and also a lot of things i would want to continue Oh, can I ask what? <laughs> what no, did you no. learn that you don't want to do? Okay, honestly, I learned I would love mm. to be the money, the developer. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah, you yeah. have the yeah. biggest control on the innovation and yeah. the route you can yeah. take a project. Yeah. So you design beauty and money hacks it. Yeah. And your heart is crushed because I feel like people don't understand for all mm. designers your heart is put into it. Even when we yeah. look so laser fair, yeah. we look like we're not with it. Yeah. Your heart is put, a little piece of you has to be inside that design. Yeah, and it gets crushed, you know? <laughs> yeah. you know? It gets crushed and you go like, yeah, we're not mm. doing that anymore. So that whole wall, just paint it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. I remember this. <laughs> yeah. it, it gets crushed a bit. Yeah. But also yeah. now it teaches you to change the narrative. So if you figured out what you want mm-hmm. from this career. So mm-hmm. now you have to figure out how to make it happen. Because mm-hmm. if you're not busy living, you'll be busy dying. So figure it out. That's what I, I think. Can say. <laughs> yeah, that's a good takeaway. Like understanding through that process what you want to do differently. And I don't know, even for me, just from the years I was working in Nairobi, the experiences I had, it becomes a basis for developing your kind of design values and your design approach going forward. And actually this feeling that, you know, I guess it's not just a a Kenyan thing in terms of architect really being under the thumb of whoever has the money in the project (laughs) and causing us as architects and designers to really rethink the ways in which we want to kind of structure potentially design the construction process that allows us to also have more impact and to hold on to a lot more of uh, that creative direction and also just the values of a project you know because I think somehow through the skills and the information and the approach we learn as architects, some of our design values then will be, okay, we want something that is built beautifully and impeccably, but we also want something that is culturally appropriate, that makes good use of local materials, that is climatically suited to the place where which it's being put up. Yeah, being able to design or curate 
either the projects or the structure of our companies in such a way that allows us to have more of this control over these aspects. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the dream. We believe it. I guess that's yeah. why we get those Alva Alto decided you can't put that signage on the building. When you do finally get to that point, yeah. remember you had a basis in your yeah. innocence, if I can call yeah. it. Okay, so in comparison, first of all, a small mm-hmm. bit about your experience in learning in Kenya, mm-hmm. how we get trained and mm-hmm. learning on another continent. One was called OTF. Now it's called 3DPA. It was <laughs> called Open Thesis Fabrication. And basically, I think they were exploring again, through an open thesis, fabrication techniques and how they can be applied to architecture. Eventually they settled on 3D printing with clay as a viable application in architecture. One cause, well, clay art is literally this material that's right on every site. You dig a little and you can already start to get your raw materials, but also art can have very good like structural properties, can have very good climatic properties. To really you know, off the earth. <laughs> the golden child of construction material. And if you 3D print with it, literally from the earth that you have on your site, then it's zero kilometer. So your carbon emissions are like almost non-existent. <laughs> okay, very low compared to conventional building materials. Differences in terms of same experience, learning in... Kenya versus in Spain? Well, one, our class was very small. Yeah, I think in my year we were 12 or 15 people in total. Well, wow. but Maku, between 12 people, okay, we had two program directors, fabrication and design assistant, and a coordinator. So those are four people fully invested in a class of 12 people. So it really felt like there was enough people available to ask for help about things that were not clear or to get any concerns uh, quickly addressed, say, compared to our architecture classes, which had like, I don't know, <laughs> over 40 people. I think I really appreciated this, the learning in a very small number of people. Or let me just say the ratio of the kind of teaching education stuff to the classroom was very dedicated and meaty. I mean, I imagine a lot of us, like our perception is that if you go study abroad, everything is just all the more better than back at home. Yes, that is the perception. I can't say that this is accurate. Somehow I feel, and even at the University of Nairobi, we had some very good, very knowledgeable, very competent, very inspiring lecturers. And I dare say some to the degree that I didn't even observe here in Spain. Awesome. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do believe, okay, here in Spain, we also had very good team of faculty and teachers. Another huge difference is like this level of informality. A lot of the teachers were already maybe 10, 15 years older than us. We are somewhat kind of like peers. We can talk in a way that feels very free and open and easy compared to, okay, a lot of my lecturers at the University of Nairobi were old enough to be my father, you know? So there's a different level of difference into the ways in which you communicate. I don't know, maybe that is also makes them seem more approachable. If your faculty is approachable, yeah, you probably will interact with them more and try to get help when you feel 
you're encountering difficulties. I think another thing that was very different between, say, IAC and the University of Nairobi is like strict adherence to the structure, you know, like the calendar is set probably months before we arrive, maybe a year before we arrive. And to, as far as I can remember, it's followed to the letter, like whatever was supposed to happen on say, Monday, the 21st of October, or I don't know, 28th November on Thursday will happen on that day at that time. There's a very predictable structured progression in terms of how the, the program was unfolding. I'd say at the University of Nairobi, where <laughs> things could kind of jump around occasionally. All our projects in IAC were group projects. So we were always working in teams of two, three, four people. Well, two to three people in my class compared to, say, our undergrad at the University mm. of Nairobi, where you, for studio work and architecture work, you are working individually. I think working in groups in an architectural educational setting is essential. I think more architectural training should try emphasize group work projects mm -hmm. Because this is a true reflection of how you work in practice. Because, of course, not just in the office, but in terms of how projects are structured, you will always have to collaborate with engineers, with QSs. You'll have to listen to your clients. Sometimes, even within a group, one person may have an approach that the other person does not agree with, and you have to now negotiate and understand and then come to a consensus. I don't know. I think it was a very different experience working on projects in a group. There's a heavy focus on like computational design and parametric design and using software like Rhino, Grasshopper. For me, in my background, all this was alien. I'd never been in an architecture class or ever had to work in a project that required this approach. And if I'm being very frank, the first time I encountered, say, classes where I had to use Grasshopper, is like visual scripting i was like what is this <laughs> why am i going through this complicated mind-boggling process to generate some shapes i was like Whoa. i was how? mind boggled what? i was like how is this architecture <laughs> when over time you learn oh wow having the level of control that this kind of processes give you down yeah. to point or to the line it becomes a very powerful tool for how you deal with iterations but also how you deal with design that responds to very specific fixed conditions and how you keep the integrity of those conditions into the thing that's finally fabricated or built because i guess a lot of times in our conventional design process we have a concept and all we're like oh yeah the building needs to be oriented this way and it needs to shield from the sun at this time and allow in the sun at this time and it also needs to funnel in the wind in this way so that the spaces are cross ventilated then roughly okay you're like okay i will make the building space this way and i'll put my openings here to achieve this but it's not necessarily tested it's not simulated it's not provable that the thing you've done will do what you're saying it will do but through this kind of process, you can fix your constraints in a way that allows you to simulate and confirm that your geometry is doing what you want it to do. And then you still maintain that integrity between the design 
and the final output because it's going to be digitally fabricated. So you're yeah. coming from design through code into an object that hasn't been tweaked and tinkered with by a contractor and changed. <laughs> anyway, so for me, these processes were it was like, oh, how is this architecture? <laughs> like, why, why am I becoming like a computer scientist? And it was very helpful to work in groups because there's people who were already in the program who had been working with these processes for over a year or maybe a couple of years before me. By having these people in the group, you know, they can be kind of the lead or go-to when we're working on these solutions that require like parametric approach and the use of grasshopper and you like well for me i can contribute other sets of skills whether it relates to my ability to research <laughs> or my ability to synthesize information and come up with conclusions or my design skills because eventually there was design work so yeah there's something very strong about this group work approach but also the flip side very frustrating like i don't think it's easy designing in groups and teams because <laughs> of course there's different people who probably have different approaches different solutions and you need to figure out how you can come to a consensus so that can be stressful but i think very rich then a lot of support from faculty a lot of support so while i'd say it was i couldn't imagine doing this course on my own without the amount of support that the school offered it would be very hard it was well-rounded lots of faculty support the group work approach very strong i think also the scientific research approach was very essential for our program and i mean this in terms of okay we're working with a process that's kind of on the cutting edge this kind of 3d printing but we're working with 3D printing with clay, which is also, again, another kind of frontier approach since people have not been building with clay in this way. So it's required that we understand so many different things. So first of all, we had to learn about the clay as a material, how it behaves, its uh, structural properties when wet, its structural properties when drying its chemical compositions. Then we had to understand about like the 3D printer and how it moves to generate geometries, how it translates your 3D model into code, which then the machine will interpret and output. And then we had to understand this kind of performance driven design. So then it means, okay, having like a very fixed, explicit objective yeah and then testing out incrementally whether your solutions are achieving that objective so in a way this was very very rigid like a, a believable scientific process which i don't know maybe i never worked on projects in our undergrad that was structured in this way or with this kind of level of rigidity in terms of how you generate an output. So I feel that in terms of scientific research process that then builds up into how you prototype or how you do iterations on a specific solution you're trying to achieve, like this was very enriching. Okay, but also in fairness to yeah. our training, yeah. they had a six-year period to compress a 10-15-year yeah. foundation. 
Right, so right, right, right. You also understand why, because there's a lot. It is, yeah. To get you to somewhere before you can go add on for yourself. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. But I still think the University of Nairobi's program is a good one. Yeah, it is. It is, yeah. Okay, it was. I don't know right now, guys, so I hope it is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't speak in present because it was yeah. when we had it. I don't know right yeah. now. The random question of the session. If you could remove one color in the whole world, what would it be and why? Oh. <laughs> One color. Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> wow, is black a color? <laughs> no, black. Yeah, is a color. it's an absence of color, but it's still a color. Black is the absence of color. Yeah. But I don't know. No, black is still. I think it's <laughs> essential as a contrast. You know, as yeah. a base <laughs> to things that can be layered upon it. Purple, orange, red. I think I'd remove red. <laughs> okay. Why? I'd remove red so that it doesn't make people angry. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> feel, feel hot. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, a kid, I think there's probably places for red to exist and contexts for red to exist. Yeah. But maybe in interiors of a office, <laughs> I would remove all the color red so that people don't get angry. <laughs> okay, yeah, the psychology of color, yeah. And True. don't feel hot or don't feel like they want to fight and box yeah. people. <laughs> okay, and I've removed red too, but mm. for a completely different reason. What reason? <laughs> so I approached it as if I have to remove a color, yeah, it has to be something that cannot be made ever again, right? I see. So it has to be a primary color. Ah, nice. So it has to be red, blue, or yellow. So that nice. all those other colors will never be able to make it. I see. I chose red because honestly, blue, ocean, sky. We need our color. Yellow, yellow. (laughs) I can't, if I don't have yellow, Mm. you don't get a lot of light. So much is yellow, sunflowers. Happy. Bright Mm. and happy. But I got to the conundrum that I really love sunsets and red is needed (laughs) for sunsets. But I made peace that if I have to check a color. Yeah. Between the three, it's going to be red. I'm sorry, Orange. It will probably be red. (laughs) And then the hope is, like, this is not tied to the physics of the world and red, you know, kind of being a source of heat or warmth. Yeah, (laughs) and fire and all that. No, no, we were in randomness only, guys. Well, not source, but kind of like byproduct of heat. (laughs) (laughs) I get you. Okay. So with that... In your publication journey, Mm -hmm. how has it translated in the betterment of your designs right now? Because we are currently using CNC and publications, but we tend to ask the experts instead of doing it ourselves. So you get to combine both. Yeah. Since I was working with 3D printing, well, a couple of months leading into a year, I don't know. I feel the best way in which I've been impacted by this process as a designer is kind of this understanding that, okay, like digital fabrication tools and equipment, they give us a lot of freedom in terms of the kinds of geometries or the kinds of shapes, forms, variety, novelty, just novelty in terms of the things we can output. So then in the realm of all this novelty, what becomes appropriate? What feels like the correct solution or the appropriate solution? 
for your specific design challenges or concepts. And I feel going through this process that gives you the appropriate solution where so many things are a possibility is very satisfying and feels like a good way to make use of digital fabrication. So then if you're talking about designing for a very specific climate or designing because you want to allow light to come into a space in a very specific controlled way or designing because you want, I don't know, you want to make a piece of pottery that can bake itself <laughs> when it's put in a kiln. There's through just our understanding of physics and how physics interacts with matter, certain forms and certain shapes are better for certain outcomes compared to others. And this process of finding those forms and shapes that are suitable for the final end product that you're trying to achieve or the final end goal you're trying to achieve, I think is a very, a very grounded, very satisfying approach to design. So we're living in a world where you can do anything, <laughs> but in the specific context of a, of a project you're working on or an object you're making that needs to perform a certain action, then what becomes the appropriate form, like finding the form that does the thing you want it to do. And then also the beautiful surprise that can come up, like sometimes when you don't know what that form is going to be and you just you go through the process of defining these parameters and the form that's revealed sometimes is just like a marvel like it's things maybe you could not have anticipated or you could not have kind of forced into your design like working with nature <laughs> or working with science yeah, or working cool. with with the limitations of your material limitations of gravity the limitations of your tool of production to find the appropriate geometries. <laughs> okay. Yeah. How would you translate it mm. into making it a viable business here or do we mm. not yet have the infrastructure for it? To be honest, I think this translates. So when observing, for example, a 3D printer sounds like a very esoteric, dramatic machine. Yes. But in <laughs> essence, it's not. So for example, some of the robotic arms that I saw in IS are basically robotic arms that were repurposed from say the vehicle manufacture industry like these were robotic arms that they were using in the vehicle manufacture industry like yeah. decades and decades ago that have literally been repurposed a 3d printer is essentially almost like a dumb machine <laughs> can move okay on in three axes if you're working with robotic arms then you have more axes of motion but the basic, basic 3D printers, we usually see the Cartesian 3D printers, they yeah. move in X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. So if your thing can move left, right, up and down, and within this configuration of motions, it can be programmed to read code that will just direct it to move in these ways to eventually produce your geometry. Somehow I feel mechatronic engineers even in Kenya, are already doing far more complex things in terms yeah. of what they do for factories, what they do for maybe vehicle assembly plants, because we don't manufacture. I somehow feel these are literally skill sets that are available in Kenya. If we're just talking about, say, building a 3D, we can already tap into skill sets that 
um, exist in Kenya. We, for example, 3D printers that are building at the architectural scale. So I'll give an example, would be a machine called Crane Wasp. Yeah, it's a modular 3D printer. And essentially it has the robotic arm that controlled via the code that you receive generated from your 3D model. But this crane arm is essentially mounted onto like space frame structural support. Space frames are not anything esoteric that we cannot yeah. find within context of our construction, like the construction materials or structural frames that are available locally. So essentially what's needed is kind of the skills through homegrown solutions, put these things together. Also, a lot of this information is out there. It's open source. So it's literally a matter of getting that information, asking in the communities, getting help from the communities because people share a lot of information and then trying it out. <laughs> Just from my observation, I didn't see anything that was deeply esoteric that didn't have skill sets that we already have in Kenya that can come together to collaborate and make homegrown versions of these machines and these processes. So especially for 3D printer, I feel uh, architecture scale 3D printer could be assembled locally in Kenya. And now it would be down to, okay, what mode are you using to deposit the material? Is it some kind of pump or pressure system? How do you feed the material into the machine? what kind of software or kind of electronic soft has been coded to interface with that machine. And I feel we have the skill sets locally that could collaborate on such a project. Because <laughs> yeah. I know a, a lot of the challenges people raise about 3D printing, say in Kenya, in Africa, is, oh, we have to bring in the machines, then yeah. there's all customs, and then it's this bulky thing that people don't know how to operate. But mm. if maybe we started looking into the idea of... But yeah, for small scale, I know some who are already doing it. The small scale, yeah. yes. Big scale, yeah. we've not gotten there yet. Not to yeah. say we haven't, or I haven't checked the market yet for the big scale ones. There <laughs> is a, a 3D printed prototype in concrete in mm -hmm. Kenya, if I'm not wrong. By Is it by 14 Trees? There's a company called 14 Trees mm -hmm. that does affordable housing in yeah. the African market. And they did a prototype house in Nairobi. In terms of, say, a viable prototype, it has been proven that it can be done. But I think they went through the process where they had to bring a 3D printer, yeah. train. But I wonder if it's possible to look into building, yeah, like assembling and building some of these equipment locally. And then maybe the only other cost we incur is training on how to how to use, use them. them. But then this becomes once you're trained on something that becomes a home grown that's a skill that you have that you can pass on to a, a local workforce that's interested in acquiring this skill so i i don't know i think it's possible <laughs> yeah good that's optimism is good so for guys listening thank you and remember to figure out what you want then work diligently towards it consistently and patiently 
follow us on instagram the link is on our bio to see all the platforms we are on and all the things we do it has been my pleasure Lynette. thank you so much thank you thank you for having me bush thank you so much it was a pleasure chatting (laughs) yay thank you for letting me rumble on your podcast (laughs) always welcome